Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I got to call you out right off the top of this episode. Oh boy, I'm, I'm not go. going to wait because before every episode, you put together a little rundown of what we're going to talk about, right? Uh huh. This episode's rundown, you just copied and pasted an email from Noah and you called it good. <laughs> like, did you just mail in, did you mail in your takes too or just the questions part of this thing? I mean, Noah, our loyal listener, emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com, and he had some fabulous questions and you just shamelessly took all of them. Listen. <laughs> I didn't shamelessly do anything, okay? I'm thinking strategically here. We've got a lot to work through after a weekend of playoff basketball. It's Monday night. The Sixers heat game ended about five minutes ago. And I took this email to give us sort of a framework, but then keep it pretty open-ended. I feel like if we bog down the mailbag with like 30 different questions... We're not going to be able to cover everything, and I'm, I'm just trying to keep this as freewheeling as possible. You know, this is just a conversation between me and you with a little help from Noah. Is that yeah, cool? No, I hear you. You know, preparation would only get in the way, so let's... <laughs> <laughs> That's always been our attitude, you know? Um, yes, it's Monday night. We're both a little bit punchy. Sixers heat was awesome, so let's just jump into it right here. Noah says... I really enjoyed your flashback to the storied history of Game 1 overreactions. In keeping with that spirit and indulging my own propensity for drama, I give you some Game 1 overreactions to be over, under, or properly rated. Uh, and then he goes through 10 different overreactions. We're not probably not going to get to all 10, yeah, but we'll, we'll take some Only of these 8 or 9, according to your outline. <laughs> We're only going to get to 8 or 9 of them. Yo, listen, you can plan the shows if you want to, man. I don't really care. Anyways, overreaction number one, because we're starting in Philly. This came after game one. He said Sixers over Cavs in five. And look, some of the Sixers wins were just wild. And when the Sixers are good and rolling and blowing teams off the, the court, I start thinking crazy thoughts. Like I, it's, There have been a couple points throughout the Sixers winning streak where I've started to wonder like, how do the Warriors match up with this? And so I can't blame anyone for overreacting to how good the Sixers have looked, how good they looked in game one. But there's been another game. Where are we after game two, Ben? What are you What, what are you feeling right now? Obviously, it's fresh. We're still processing this. No pun intended. But what do you think? No, I mean, it's clearly panic time in Philly. They lost for the first time in a month. <laughs> the house of cards has collapsed. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, their game one performance was just one of those magical nights. I mean, it, it popped through the television screen. And the people who were there, I'm sure they're going to kind of remember that game for a long, long time. Not only because of the pain of the process, but just how perfectly everything fell into place in game one. And I think the, the number that... Uh, jumped off the box score and really fed into, uh, I think, what, what you're describing in terms of like anything is possible with this group is the fact that they hit 18 threes in that game, you know? And it's like, right. who's ever going to beat a team that, that's that skilled if they're shooting that well? And uh, I kind of came away from game one expecting regression. I think that happened in game two a little bit. Uh, I would say the Sixers, though, for being a fairly inexperienced team, uh, and being without Joel Embiid, I thought they handled the adversity of Game 2 fairly well. You know, they started off really cold. They kept going. They kept going. Uh, 
they were taking body blows from Dwayne Wade left and right. They didn't let the game slip away from them. Uh, they're playing sort of older than their age or more mature than you might expect for a team like that. So ultimately, I think they're in a pretty good spot. Now, is it an overreaction to say they're going to sweep through the Eastern Conference and, you know, <laughs> knock LeBron James out? I think that would qualify as an overreaction, you know, in terms of Noah's question. But I think the optimism level, even though they've just, you know, technically lost home court here, I think the optimism level still should be really, really high. They're putting Miami in some difficult uh, decisions in terms of the matchup game. Simmons is getting to the rim very, very consistently. The shooters are getting really good looks. You know, Miami cleaned some of that up in game two. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think if if you're the Sixers and, and the big question coming into the playoffs was was like, well, how's it going to translate? Like, it's translating. It's <laughs> translating. Well, yeah, I think that's a good take uh, because that that was sort of how I felt where once Miami went up like 15 in the third quarter, it, it just it kind of felt like it wasn't Philly's night. And then to be able to claw back and I mean, when it, they, I think they got within four at one point late in the fourth quarter and, you know, the crowd there has been so wild. I kind of had to do a double take and was like, man, I guess Philly could steal this game. And uh, given everything that went wrong for them, like Robert Covington is a huge X factor for them. When he plays really well, they become like one of the five best teams in the league. And uh, he had one of the worst games I've seen over the last like month or two of his season um, tonight. And so when he plays like that, when, I mean, Simmons was struggling, Miami, we, sh- we should get into that and, and the way the Heat matched up with him. But, like, it just wasn't Philly's night, and they were still right there, which is pretty encouraging. Um, what did you think about the way the Heat guarded Simmons? Because I, I feel like that that is closer to the blueprint to stopping him than anything we've seen uh, from anyone else this season. Well, go ahead and elaborate. I mean, what do you mean? Well, I guess, and I shouldn't say anyone else because I, the only other example of a team that has successfully kind of slowed down Simmons is the Wizards because they throw Otto Porter on him and they throw Kelly Oubre on him and they guard him close and, and force him to beat them off the dribble, which he can do. But I think that's a better way to approach it instead, like rather than conceding an extra five or 10 feet of space and allowing him to get a running start at the hoop in which, at which point like he has clear lines of vision and has been able to just sort of pick teams apart. I guess like it's a little counterintuitive because obviously if a guy can't shoot, you, you think let's concede the jumper, but if he's not going to take those and we'll just get going downhill, he becomes kind of an unstoppable. And I thought, the heat kind of went a different direction tonight, and it worked certainly in the first half. Yeah, I mean, to me, that was definitely an adjustment from them, but I think maybe even more basic than that, rudimentary than that, they didn't let him get out and transition as effortlessly as they did in game one. I mean, they were just, you know, running a track meet. I mean, Simmons was pushing the ball so well, uh, just time and time again in game one, and he was finding shooters, yeah. whether it was with assists or hockey assists. I mean, the ball was humming because they had really, really had that pace going, and uh, that dried up a little bit in game two. Philly's going to have to kind of remanufacture that. Uh, I hear what you're saying about playing him close up. I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, they talked after game one, the Heat did, about how tricky it is for them 
to deal with all the off-ball stuff, um, you know, cuts, uh, guys coming off screens for quick catch-and-shoot three-pointers. You know, Bellinelli's mm-hmm. been hitting some crazy shots. J.J. Reddick's excellent in that situation, too. And Simmons doesn't need much time to hit those guys on target and in stride. So, uh, you know, blurring his vision, you know, definitely makes sense. But also slowing him down uh, is going to be a key for anyone who's trying to defend the Sixers. And uh, they succeeded in both in Game 2, Miami did, and, and that's why they even the series. Can we talk about Wade? Because he was just ridiculous. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, flashback game. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, the question is consistency. You know, I mean, how many of those does he have in a series? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I just, he's someone who I came to loathe at the peak of those heat years, but he's been having these stubborn old asshole performances for like five years now where like, once every three weeks, he'll have a game where he reminds everyone that he's Dwayne Wade. And I, I just kind of love this version of him more than more than I even liked Prime Wade. And, uh, like, there was a moment in the third quarter where he was backing down Covington and then hit, like, a 21-foot jumper in his eye and then just stood over Covington. And it was, it was like, I'm Dwayne Wade, you're Robert Covington. It was awesome. Um, and he... Again, you're right. There's no way they're going to replicate this. And I think one of the things that is dangerous about this Heat team is you look up and down the roster and no one is like consistently scary, but they've got six or seven guys who can step up on any given night. And so I wouldn't write them off entirely uh, based on firepower. But man, is it fun to have sneering Wade, especially I feel like he's even more fun on the road with like a, a stadium of 30,000 people booing him and he just loves every second of it and it was fun to watch yeah I mean you mentioned the play where he hits a shot over Covington I think my favorite Wade play from that game was when he just basically you know left his man entirely you know mugged uh Sarge from the back you know, gets the clean yes. steal and the, and the take in for two and then I think the next subsequent play he he winds up, you know, threading the needle for a pass going to the basket. I mean, it really well, seemed like that shifted the momentum. And that was just a, a classic case of a guy, and this is the oldest truism in the book, but Wade's played hundreds of playoff games. You know, he knows how certain guys are going to react. He knows when a team's kind of going through the motions with their play. Sarge got caught doing that. He jumped it, made a, a brilliant play on the ball, and, you know, takes it in. I mean, it's an instinctual play. It's a play from experience. Uh, and that was one moment, I thought, where, you know, he his experience and, uh, you know, that edge – really shown through for Miami. Yeah, for sure. And that legitimately changed the complexion of the whole game because it really did. Like I said, it felt like the Sixers were going to surge back and steal it. And then Wade came in to kind of like calm everything down, made two huge plays, and then the Heat were in control again. So I don't know. I mean, I, I come away from this thinking this series is probably going six or seven because I can't see... I mean, I can't see Philly going out of Miami and stealing both games. And then, uh, you know, it's going to come back 2-2 in Philly. And then it the Heat are just going to be a real pain in the ass. Like, they, I think Philly will win this series, but the Heat are too good to go quietly, which is super cliche to say. But they just all play really hard. They're so smart. And uh, I don't know. I can't wait to watch it. Well, here's a, a blessing in disguise, I think. Losing allows Joel Embiid to come back with less scrutiny, doesn't it? I mean, if you're That's riding an 18-19 game winning streak or whatever they could have been up to, you know, if they win this game, go down to Miami and he's not ready, 
um, you know, it gets awkward. If he comes back, you know, the target's on his back. If, you know, he's going to screw everything up. The offense is going to have to change. Simmons is going to have to do less. I mean, that's a really easy thing for media members to talk about, but also players to think about, you know, because you've been playing one very distinct way here for the last 10 games, and it's been working. I mean, during his absence to close the season, Philadelphia, I believe, was number one in offensive rating, uh, number one in pace, uh, and like uh, number, maybe number two in, um, uh, assist ratio. So like they were just a completely different team during that stretch and a really, really good and, and functional offense. Uh, and B's not going to necessarily make it worse, but he makes it different. Uh, at the same mm-hmm. point now, if he does reenter the series here in the coming days, uh, I think he's a matchup nightmare for Miami. I mean, I, I understand Whiteside's life might be a little bit easier <laughs> if he's guarding Embiid rather than trying to like run out on the perimeter and deal with these guys. Uh, but I think that just furthers sort of the talent gap uh, between these two teams. And I do view Philly right now uh, as the more talented team. And I think that could make it, you know, a five or six game series, depending on when uh, Embiid comes back. I agree with you on the talent question and watching them for the last couple weeks and through these first two playoff games, I really am convinced like conference finals, I would not be shocked whatsoever if they beat Cleveland or Toronto when they get there. Uh, I mean, it's just a really good team. The Embiid-Simmons question is something that you and I have talked about offline. They're definitely not better without Joel Embiid. However, the stylistic quirks that we've seen over the last couple weeks have been really interesting. And uh, I, I mean... The offense is scarier in its present form than it was for the first five months of the season. Let's put it that way. And the defense will be better with Embiid, and Embiid, his offense will be really valuable closing tight playoff games uh, because that's when it really helps to have a guy who can just go get a bucket, and Embiid has been that guy for them. But um, yeah, and also like it, it helps. Is scary as hell in the in this wide open style. Yeah, look. Embiid will level things out too. If they have a night where they're they're shooting like four for 20 on threes, he's going to right. give you lots of good alternatives. He's going to get himself to the free throw line a lot too. So you're going to be getting, you know, tons and tons of, um, you know, points that way. I think what I'd say though about the embiid Sixers is they remind me of sort of the, the quintessential 2015 Hawks team, but just like <laughs> pumped up on the best horse steroids ever, like actually talented, <laughs> huge players. Yeah, and like, exactly, like, I mean, being able to pull guys like Bellinelli and Ilyasova off the scrap heap, plug them into this locker room uh, or this lineup, and you know they basically have one or, or maybe one and a half skills, but you have Ben yep. Simmons just orchestrating the whole thing, getting them wide open looks. They're all playing this Euro ball. I mean, that's constantly completely spread floor uh, on basically every possession when they're really going well, especially like they were in game one. I mean, that is... I mean, to be honest, from an aesthetic standpoint, that's almost perfect. And Embiid is fun to watch, but it's not necessarily for, like, the beauty of the game. Like, this isn't that Brett Brown, like, Greg Popovich 2014, you know, Budenholzer-style, like, beautiful game when Embiid's out there. It just looks different, and uh, that's not a knock on him, but... I think when Embiid does come back, if I were them, isn't the trick to kind of maybe stagger them a little bit and almost try to weave some of this magic that they've captured here over these last couple of weeks into sort of shorter stretches of the game where you can go to those small lineups and try to do damage? I think that's a good way to play it. And I would just add that um, the success of Bellinelli and Ilyasova, I mean, 
they've obviously been great, but I think a ton of that credit has to go to Simmons because there are not many other situations in the league where those guys would have slid in for the playoff run and been like half as effective as they have been in Philly. And uh, yeah, you know what just... I was thinking when I saw those guys going off? Uh, I was thinking LeBron somewhere just grimacing. He's thinking, I got Jeff Green 0 for 7 in game one. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys get five threes apiece basically in, in their game one. I mean, what happened? Where was uh, where was Kobe Altman on that one? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it the the Embiid question is going to be really interesting to watch because you're right. If if they can stagger them effectively and integrate him relatively seamlessly, I I mean like this team gets so scary. But at, by the same token, the Heat are going to be a pain in the ass. Uh, I I think the next game is on Thursday, and it's going to be a war for the next two weeks for them. So, but. We have a lot of different series to get to, so we should move on. Uh, Noah's overreaction number two is to say OKC was built for the playoffs. <laughs> what do you think of that Thunder win, man? To be honest, I got to really hand it to Paul George. This was a brilliant rebrand, okay? Last year, he, <laughs> he comes in with the loose lips Paul moniker that I give him. Granted, not the world's best nickname, but it yes, was he accurate. he give himself that nickname. It, it was accurate in terms of how he was comporting himself. Uh, and this year, he came back with Playoff P, which is an even worse nickname, but it's even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> and he lived up to it. I mean... The comparisons, you know, the whatabouts were coming if Paul George hadn't played well and if Oklahoma City had lost that game one because Indiana had looked sensational. I mean, Oladipo turns in an amazing performance, gives some great podium material, talking about, you know, Dan Gilbert counting him out and saying how he doesn't care about what the national media (laughs) thinks. Like, Oladipo was playing every card that he possibly could, right? And then Paul George responded and give him credit for that. He played a great game one. It's a great point. The Hoosiers were ready to come for him. If he even if he had had like twenty points in a in a close Thunder win, uh, he would have been hearing from the Greg Doyles of the world. But uh, playoff P, man, you called it, okay? On our podcast <laughs> before the playoffs, I, I think it was Friday's pod. It, some buried somewhere in that ninety-minute rambling session uh, of a preview. You predicted that Paul George was going to be the interview to watch throughout these playoffs, and you are 100% right. Dropping the playoff P nickname on the eve of of the Thunder's Game 1, and then I loved Russell Westbrook and Carmelo immediately making fun of him for that nickname afterwards. But as far as OKC being built for the playoffs, I... I mean, this is something that I've been saying kind of on and off for the last five or six months. I think they're going to be much tougher in a playoff series than they were throughout some of the kind of like random nights during the regular season. Um, However, I also just can't believe watching like 48 minutes of Carmelo, he is so washed up and so much slower than he was even like a year or two ago. Um, So I'm, I'm reluctant to like say that the OKC foundation is totally sound, but it's a fact that any game Paul George goes off for 35-plus, like, OKC becomes elite. No, their dynamic is so funny. Like, Carmelo, who, as you said, is, you know, years beyond being a, a <laughs> very productive really player. 
So you've got him, and then you've got Westbrook, who's wearing sunglasses, uh, a sports jacket, and no shirt, are giggling on the podium about how Paul George is a nerd for giving himself a, a bad nickname. I mean, what is this? Like, <laughs> this is your this is your jury over here. Uh, yeah, glad you guys weighed in. Um, I thought the underrated playoff P moment was his bars for Joe Ingles. I don't know if you saw that. He <laughs> he goes, my defensive strategy on Joe Ingles is to just pressure him. It's very, very unlikely he'll beat me off the dribble. I mean, nice, subtle shade. If I was I a Jazz fan, <laughs> I'd be so angry and livid. I'd really be rallying around that comment. Uh, in terms of on the court stuff, though, and you know what I did see on the court with him? Uh, and cover your ears, Elizabeth. He he said bitch ass. I think he called Ingles a bitch ass and used the F word in some way or another. I forget how how it went, but they were talking on the court as well. Look, it's it's playoff P for playoff profanity, Paul. <laughs> He's okay? locked in, absolutely. <laughs> okay. You know what? Can real I, analysis, Can I give though? a real take, please, here for one yes, second? Yes, go for oh, it. You okay. go first. In terms of real... Playoff analysis here. I would like to just say that OKC's always look great when Paul George is hitting. Paul George doesn't always hit, right? And so uh, within the seven game series, I think overreacting to him having, you know, basically his best game in three months, uh, that's a sign of caution. Like for Utah, uh, you know, there was some rough moments for them offensively. That was kind of to be expected, but I don't think Oklahoma City is going to be functioning on the same level over the course of a series. So I'm not yep. really ready to count the Jazz out totally. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, they looked very similar on paper entering the series and, and Oklahoma City's talent showed up. And those top two guys are both very, very good. And I think that's going to be sort of the question is how consistently can George and Westbrook play like they did in game one because this season has been anything but that you know and so if Paul George has really somehow magically turned a leaf and he's going to bring this every single night then I don't think the Jazz stand a chance but I'm just dubious he's going to be able to do that the one thing I will say about George in addition to his like eight for 11 from three which obviously isn't sustainable I really liked him guarding Joe Ingles um and (laughs) beyond the bitch-ass trash talk. I thought that that was an interesting move, and a lot of people were calling for him to guard Donovan Mitchell. But if you look at the Jazz season, so much of it turned when Joe Ingles started to like hit from everywhere and just became like the Otto Porter of Utah and was really valuable for them. And uh Taking him out of the picture, I think he was like one of five with with Paul George guarding him, really kind of screws with Utah's whole system, and it forced Ricky Rubio to take on an increased burden. That did not go well. Donovan Mitchell had to do more, and he did really well, but that wasn't enough. And and I think that is something to watch, because if if Ingles isn't going to be a factor in the series, like... Utah will definitely steal a game or two, but there's no way that they win this series with with no Joe Ingles. And Donovan Mitchell is out for game two, I believe. Uh, I thought he was going to play, but yeah, he's shaken off like a toe injury. Uh, I mean, to me, uh, it's a smart strategy because you can always use Paul George if Mitchell's lighting you up for 35 or 40, right? Like you can always make that adjustment. But if you can throw that wrench into them early, uh, try to get away, uh, you know, make life more difficult for guys who are relying upon others to set them up. And, you know, Ingles is one of their primary facilitators. You know, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, uh, Also, I mean, guarding Mitchell, you know, through screens and all that stuff. I mean, that is probably, you know, arguably more tiresome than guarding Ingles uh, from Paul George's standpoint. So, 
uh, I think, you know, it's, it's smart to conserve him. If you had both him and Robertson, you know, they could you know, basically just alternate those guys. But since they don't, uh, it makes sense to kind of use uh, Paul George that way. But I'm sure he's going to get plenty of time on Mitchell as the series continues. And especially yeah. if Utah tries to, you know, basically counter by telling Donovan Mitchell, hey, just go nuts. You're our best shot here. Yeah, we'll see. Still a lot of series left. Don't want to give it to OKC too quickly. But uh, it was certainly an impressive night for playoff P. Next series, though, um, overreaction number three, LeBron is gone in Cleveland. And this is, we had another question from Byron uh, who says, I will defend LeBron as the GOAT against anyone, but is there anything more annoying than his horrific body language when things aren't going his way? What did you think? It was a rough game. Uh, I mean... I shared LeBron's evident disgust in what Cleveland was doing. I mean, their offense was just absolutely atrocious. Nobody could hit shots. Everybody seemed to be afraid of the moment. LeBron was sort of like hinting at that five different ways in his press conference without trying to you know, single anybody out. But it was sort of like a, a call for help. Like, who is going to show up here? Who is ready for this moment? Or am I going to have to do everything? And you're already starting to hear the adjustment chatter come out of, oh, LeBron needs to play more from the post. Oh, LeBron needs to be more aggressive early. LeBron's got to do this. LeBron's got to do that. That's what we saw in that 2015 playoff run. And it's really early to be getting into that. (laughs) You know, I mean, Indiana, it was the first time he'd ever lost a game one in the first round. Uh, It was his worst uh, first round loss by points. Uh, since 2008. I believe the Wizards blew him out that year in one of the games. Uh, And right. then it was also the first time he had lost a first-round game since 2012. So this was a real outlier in terms of LeBron's own you know, playoff record. I thought they obviously missed Kyrie because, you know, LeBron tries to defer early in the game. And there's just there's nobody to defer to. Everyone's, you know, missing shots left and right. The only guy who looked comfortable besides LeBron really was J.R. Smith. They're probably going to have to move him back to the starting lineup, I would guess, uh, just because they need something going. And, uh, you know, it was demoralizing start to this postseason. You know, if you're LeBron and you're thinking, hey, like, you know, Indiana, sure, they're a cute story, but, you know, I'm going to be able to take care of these guys easily. Uh, you know, the Pacers came in and sort of flipped that narrative immediately. And LeBron's going to have to dig a lot deeper into his bag of tricks than he did in game one uh, to beat this team because they're not going to beat themselves. You know, I think the Pacers are pretty scrappy. They're very hungry and they're focused. You know, they weren't shocked by the fact that they were beating the Cavaliers. And that's probably yeah. the scariest part if you're LeBron. Yeah, I mean, we should talk about the Pacers for a minute. Oladipo was unreal. <laughs> like, his ability to just sprint into pull-up jumpers and hit them is like kind of mind-boggling. And uh, his defense, he's basically pre- playing free safety for them, wreaking havoc. Uh, I mean, he was excellent. And the rest of the Pacers, like, I don't know. It's still not a great sign that they didn't break 100 points against that awful Cavs defense. And I think the Cavs are not going to score like that again in this series. So I'm not really that worried about Cleveland against Indiana. Um, but you're right that this this team is not going to like disappear. I just don't know if they have enough weapons to really scare a Cavs team that is even like hitting on like 60% of its cylinders. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Oladipo, it's so disorienting when guys make the leap mid-career like this because... It's really hard. (laughs) Because, like, what you were saying... He's so clearly a superstar right now. It's so disorienting when guys make these big leaps mid-career because, 
you're used to expecting one thing, and you know the last evidence we had of Oladipo at the playoffs when he was with Oklahoma City was not good. I mean, he had no playoff track record whatsoever in Orlando, and then all of a sudden, the point that you're mentioning about his pull-up three-pointers being such a weapon, I mean, that had LeBron uh, agape. You know, I mean, at the, <laughs> the post-game press conference, he was like, you know, Oladipo, sometimes this guy just, you know, runs down full speed, pulls up and hits a three-pointer. There's nothing you can even do about it. What are you supposed to do in that situation? And I'm just sitting there thinking, is he talking about Oladipo, Victor Oladipo, the same guy? <laughs> and, I, you know, he, we've been watching him rise uh, to this, you know, this great new level all season long. But to see him do it in the playoffs, to hear the other guys like, you know, LeBron, uh, you know, talk about him like that is so disorienting. It's It's kind of a, you know, it messes with your mind a little bit, but everyone has to readjust their expectations for this Pacers team. I mean, I think that was the real takeaway from game one. You're right. You know, this is still a team that will most likely, uh, you know, go down in the series, but we shouldn't have just considered them yet another cupcake, like the Charlotte Bobcats and the, the Detroit Pistons uh, of past years that LeBron has just mercilessly picked apart. Uh, This is a different team here. Yeah. Uh, Can I push back on something you said earlier? with LeBron missing Kyrie. I think that's true. I also think that LeBron was like weirdly in autopilot for most of this game, and it was strange to see, and I think most of our faith in the Cavs was founded on the presumption that like we were going to get playoff LeBron, who was going to turn it up a notch, and he had been on that level at various points over the last two months, and he was just kind of there and he's had some of those games in the playoffs in the past where like he puts up a triple double but anyone who's watched LeBron knows that the he's like operating at 50% capacity and uh and I can't figure out how that happens in a game one at home I, I like I, it was just weird to watch yeah I mean he loves his idea of the feel out game and usually the feel out games involve you know he'll dig himself a 10 to 15 point hole and then he'll just you know uh, win the game in the fourth quarter and I th- you know, for a second there, it looked like that game one was trending that way. But, you know, Indiana handled the, the push and the rally pretty well. Yeah. Uh, to me, there was just way too much feeling and not enough doing, you know, and I think LeBron's going to come out full force in game two, because like I said, I think he was looking to see, OK, which of these guys, is it George Hill? Is it Rodney Hood? Uh, is it going to be Kevin Love? Who is going to be the person who's ready to help me here? Is it Clarkson? And he kept looking around. It's not going to be Jeff Green, 0 for 7. You know, <laughs> he, he kept looking for help and waiting for, you know, kind of trying to put other guys in situations where they could succeed. And everybody just kind of fell on their face simultaneously. So uh, that's what I mean. Uh, Kyrie certainly would have helped in that situation. But look, I mean, that's water under the bridge. I'm sure LeBron's not thinking that in the, in the yeah. moment. Uh, but it's just, it's stark when you have that feel out game, usually in the past, LeBron's history says he can have these feel out games and they'll still win because of the talent advantage and because of his ability to take over. And the Pacers didn't let that happen. Yeah. And you're right that Kyrie covered for him in some of those coasting games in the past. Um, I guess my last question for you, how long do you think we keep this Jeff Green starting charade going here? Yeah, I mean, some, something's got to give. Like I said, I, I'd bring Smith back into the starting lineup, so I don't know exactly. Hill apparently got injured maybe, uh, so that could be a question. I think they're going to have some juggling to do. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Jeff Green, you don't want to overact to a terrible game one, but you also don't want to have Jeff Green ruin your season. <laughs> so that's what... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, look, Jeff Green has had a really solid year in Cleveland. I just don't understand why we need to take him from like the 25-minute a game, pleasant surprise, to like suddenly you're counting on him 
to be a real guy. I it it's a puzzling move from Ty Lue. I don't know what he's trying to prove, especially when like Larry Nance is sitting there. Every time I watch Larry Nance on the court with LeBron, he looks great and he just seems underutilized. And I don't really understand what the what the issue is. Yeah, he was probably the one guy of the new guys who who probably had the best game in Game One, and he may see his playing time increase. But uh, you know, they're facing some issues because LeBron played 44 minutes in that game. It really didn't feel like it because he didn't have the control like he normally has, and because he started so slowly, like you mentioned, but. Uh, I mean, Ty Lue doesn't have a huge adjustment there. I mean, you can only play him 48. And so, so mm-hmm. these other guys, someone's going to have to help him. And I think that's sort of the larger point here in terms of Noah's question. Uh, what's LeBron's reason to stay? You know, as as we're watching him struggle against a Pacers team, that's fine. You know, but the Pacers are not that special, are they? I mean, it's not disrespectful of us to say they're not that great of a team, is it? Yeah. No, so, not at all. I mean, so Le- Oladipo is great, and the rest of the Pacers play hard. That's what it is. So what's LeBron's motivation here to stay in Cleveland if he's already got this kind of friction in game one? you know, And I don't think that means it's going to go seven games necessarily or that they are going to get bounced before the finals. I picked them to make the finals. I'm still with that. Uh, I don't feel great about it, but I- I'm still with that pick. But like, yeah. why, why should he stay? I mean, what help? Who can he count on in these situations? And which of these guys do you actually trust? And I'm not asking this question rhetorically. Like I'm asking you, I'm asking our listeners, I'm asking everyone. Like who? Larry Nance, who, man. Who, okay, so that that's it. I mean, because you could find another Larry Nance out there. You can go anywhere and, and find better talent. I think than what Cleveland has, uh, you know, pulled together around him on short notice. And I don't know. I'm not ready to say he's no. out the door, but it's a bad, bad start with ominous over uh, overlying tension here. I am 100% with you. I'm not ready to re-enter the matrix of potential LeBron destinations this summer. But uh, look, anyone who watched that game one and and thought like he's leaving this summer, you're not wrong. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And we'll, we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there. But for now, it's time to move on uh, to Giannis Inc. But first... Ben, today's show is brought to you by Four Hymns. Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? And the thing is, by the time you really start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Do you have any bald spots? Is your hairline moving further and further back? What happens in a year from now if you keep losing your hair? Well, we have a solution for you. What will happen a year from now if you keep losing your hair? Think on that <laughs> while I read you some very important information about 4hims.com. Look, this website is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness, all for men. Sorry, women. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. 4hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat your hair loss, well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. There's no snake oil pills, gas station counter supplements, none of that nonsense, Andrew. Just prescription solutions backed by science. You don't have to go to the waiting room. You don't have to have some awkward doctor visit where he inspects your bald spot. You can save hours by going to 4 It's so easy. All you have to do is answer a few quick questions and a doctor will review and prescribe the medication you need. And to make it even easier, all of the products are shipped directly to your door. 
Order now. Our listeners get a, tr- a trial month of hymns for just $5 today. Right now, while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to fourhymns.com slash floor. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash floor. Fourhymns.com slash floor. Check it out. It's time to get back into it. Our fourth overreaction is Giannis is gone. And Miguel follows up with a separate question. What's our DEFCON status on the Giannis choke watch? You guys already floated the idea of him going at it with a teammate, but after the game on Sunday, maybe we shouldn't discard the idea of him killing a random ref over some call. To be clear, Whoa. we're not we're not Whoa. advocating violence. We're not advocating choking. We're definitely not advocating a homicide of of any official. But Giannis, I don't blame him if he's frustrated. Um, I think his teammate Eric Bledsoe really dodged a bullet when Middleton hit that three. I feel like we would have been rewatching that Bledsoe defense on Terry Rozier for like 72 hours, if not for that Middleton three. But uh, And then the officiating at the end, I don't know. There were a lot of calls that went both ways, uh, and like both teams had, had legitimate gripes there. Um, the call at the end was kind of BS, though. Yeah, first of all, Miguel... Pump the brakes, okay? No murders. <laughs> Andrew, I thought you did a very good job of wiping the blood off your hands there, you know, distancing yourself from any threats of violence. Certainly we want to do that and make it clear that we're only joking with the choke watch. Uh, yeah, the emotions came out, though, on that sixth foul. I thought in his podium, Giannis did a great job of, of going by the book. Uh, I noticed Joe Prunty did not take the fine on his behalf. He, he didn't want anything to do with criticizing the officials. Joe Prunny, come on, man, step up. You got to take that fine. <laughs> Giannis can't foul out of a playoff game on some crazy jump ball call where the referee's making it from 25 feet away. You got to take that fine and stand up for your guy. Uh, and, you know, I understand it's a difficult situation. You're an interim coach. I mean, you're not making Doc Rivers money, but come on, you know, be better. Um, in terms of Milwaukee, uh, first of all, Giannis had a nice game. Middleton was flat out phenomenal in that game. I mean, there were so yep. many different times where I wanted to just text you and say like, yep, you know, this is, this is playoff K, <laughs> you know, <laughs> playoff K was showing up. Uh, the, the last shot was completely absurd. And, you know, you mentioned the Bledsoe defense or quote unquote defense on Rogier. You know, he got broken off so hard. He just paused and he stood there and just kind of, you know, it was, it was that look rough. It was that look on his face, like, I don't want to be here. I mean, we definitely had seen that before in Phoenix, you know, many times. You know, I I pictured uh, his same reaction, like, when Ryan McDonough comes to him in, like, February, and he's like, hey, Eric, like, I know you're having a career year, and, you know, you've been injured for the last three years, and you're finally healthy, but we're just not going to play you for the next 40 games. Is that cool? And he just had, like, the slumped shoulders and staring off into the distance, and he can't believe what's just happened to him. That was the exact same reaction we got as uh, Rogier looked him off and hit that three, but... Ultimately, I thought game one came down to kind of competence, you know? I mean, Boston mm-hmm. obviously is much more competent than Milwaukee. And I found myself, while I was watching that Milwaukee game, still sort of flush off the high of the Philly game. I mean, don't you think that the ideal coach for the, the Bucks going forward, because we can agree it's not Prunty. If he's not even taking fines for Giannis, I mean, whatever, he's out. <laughs> Get uh, out of here. <laughs> don't you think it's Coach Bud? You know, Coach Bud 
Uh, has yeah. got a, he's got a couple years left in Atlanta, right? But he was shopping with the Phoenix Suns. You know, that's really awkward. You know, Phoenix, I'm not sure exactly what they're pitching to Coach Bud, but when you watch what Simmons is able to do in terms of consistently getting the, the tempo going, spreading the court around him with shooters, and just having that more modern and also more European style, it would be such a better fit if Milwaukee played anything resembling that. And Coach Bud is apparently available. He's going on dates, even though he's still married. I don't know if he's taking his Hawks wedding ring off when he's doing that, but uh, <laughs> I think Milwaukee needs to get in the mix for him. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to be the savior, but I think his philosophy in terms of space, three-pointers, uh, you know, drive and kick, all that stuff would be the best use of Giannis's talents. And watching him just grind down, and even though Middleton was playing so well, like the effort they had to expend for every basket and yeah. the fact that they were only kind of even with the Boston team when both Giannis and Middleton were really on offensively, uh, you know, the Celtics are, are fine, but they're not great. If you can't get a win when your two best players are playing that well, something's bro- uh, broken systemically. And I think it's that type of coach uh, who's the answer here. It's a discussion for another day, probably, but I would almost, I think I would rather see Coach Bud in Phoenix um, as opposed to Milwaukee. And I Phoenix may be a slightly more attractive job, as crazy as that sounds. I don't know. The Milwaukee situation is just tough because the, the roster there is really broken and you look at Bledsoe like he was really rough in that in that game one it wasn't just the play at the end defensively he was not great the entire game and it made me do a double take like I could have sworn the after years of pitching Bledsoe trades on on, like every other team in the league uh like half the appeal was that he was a two-way guard and uh, like I think that was true I think a lot of us were pitching that without watching Suns games every night. And people who actually did watch Suns games were like, you know, Bledsoe has not really lived up to his reputation in several years. And uh, and <laughs> that's clearly being borne out early on. I think he'll probably bounce back with a better game too. But uh, the pieces around Giannis are not great. And so I, I'm a little bit reluctant to, like, I think I think Bud, if we're talking about this, which I guess we are now, I think he would be great developing some of the younger guys in Phoenix. And if you add one or two more pieces like veterans, the Suns would actually be in really good shape where it's like, I don't know, we're not that far off from another, like another underachieving Bucks season. And suddenly like we're on Giannis watch and that would not be my first choice if I were a a prospective coach. Yeah, I think, first of all, there's more immediate upside in Milwaukee. Like, if they do figure out the offense uh, with some tweaks, uh, you know, personnel-wise around Giannis, I mean, that team has 50-win potential if Giannis plays like this. I mean, their record was submarine this year. I think the the big advantage in Phoenix is that when you go interview – uh, with McDonough in the in the back of your mind you're thinking I'm just gonna take this guy's job in a year too you know like he he might not be around then well, I could be coach GM and, and that would be my mentality if I was it's uh, also coach, but it's the lowest bar in the league like you're coming in on the heels of like the Earl Watson era I mean even if they win 35 games it'll be sold as like a massive step forward uh so yeah I don't know the, yeah, and the, the other thing too though comparing them real quick 
we always talk about how bad the Phoenix, the uh, ownership situation is in Phoenix. I mean, there's lots of talk about how bad Milwaukee's is too, and they just can't get on the same page. Too many cooks in the kitchen, and so that's something to watch. Actually, when you see which of those two teams, who who do they hire this summer, who can they get? Um, yeah. I think that will tell us a lot about just the faith within the league uh, about the ownership dynamics. Who's able to kind of sort their stuff out. Uh, to get a big time coach because I think both these teams based on sort of the age of their kind of core players are ready for real coaches like Phoenix could play that Earl Watson game a couple years ago Uh, you know Milwaukee could sort of talk themselves into just like hanging on with Jason Kidd there for a Mm -hmm. while but they're both in that mode now where it's time to try to win uh, and you need a real coach to do that yeah and back to this series for a second I really enjoyed game one I felt it, it felt like a college basketball game almost where the Celtics were the team who like every time Boston scored it felt like a mini miracle because they just don't really have a lot of firepower out there Um, but they kept finding ways to get buckets and then the Bucks were the team who basically like they had a lot of talent but had no idea how to play and it was it was kind of painful to watch for stretches and and by the end of that overtime i was ready to not have to watch the bucks offense anymore um but i do think it's like every game is going to be close because the bucks kind of equalize things with their dysfunction and uh this is another one where like it really feels like it's going to go six or seven yeah, and you know Giannis when they went to small lineups, and so Giannis is sort of defending Horford. I mean, he's really grinding. I mean, he's those mm-hmm. are tough minutes. I know Horford's not like Shaquille O'Neal physique wise, but he really fights for positioning. He's so smart. You can't take a playoff mentally, or even you know a five second stretch off mentally, because you know he'll make you pay. And you know Giannis is doing heavy lifting there, and then he's obviously working hard for every hoop. Like I said on the offensive end too. So uh, you know I think that could be a factor here if this winds up being a long series. Uh, you know, Giannis fatigue is, is something I'm kind of keeping my eye on because like he always has to do everything for them. Uh, but here in this matchup, I mean, you know, Horford, uh, makes you work in lots of ways and, and you could just kind of see it late in that game. Yeah. Um, all right. Next series overreaction. Number five, after game one of, uh, Warriors Spurs, foe, foe, foe and foe mo for the Warriors. Uh, what do you think? I can't. I refuse to read too much into Golden State beating the crap out of San Antonio. Game two is happening as we speak. We should probably check the score there. But San Antonio right now, and of course the Spurs are winning. Perfect. They they're like the Grizzlies plus Lamarcus Aldridge. They're not quite like a G League team, like I said on Friday. But like this is a really average basketball team, and Golden State like whatever happens in this series i'm not sure how much we're going to really learn about uh what the warriors are working with well i was annoyed by how cleveland didn't flip the switch and i was annoyed by how golden state did flip the switch in game one i mean they really bothered me when they came out with like 110 percent max effort in game one (laughs) especially defensively the way they were locked in moving as a group you know hawking ball handlers contesting every shot no matter where it was on the court i was just sitting there kind of shaking my head like come on guys we haven't seen this in 12 months like where has this been you know but uh that was just frustrating because, you know, then you start to think all those hours you spend watching Golden State during the regular season, uh, they cared even less than we thought they did. And we thought they didn't care at all. 
Um, no, they played well in game one. Uh, I, mean, I think you're overselling how bad San Antonio's talent are. Remember, it's always about the collective, not about the individual pieces. Uh, you know, they got their, you know, butts handed to them, though, in game one. Um, there's not really any way around it. And the Kawhi thing, frankly, has been a distraction. You know, again, somehow, I'm not sure. And I know his people were sort of in spin uh, mode in between the two games, trying to explain that it was a mutual decision. That's why he's not with the team and everything else. But it was very strange that he was just nowhere to be found, not on the bench, not supporting his guys. Uh, you know, maybe uh, people who have been follow- following that saga closely, you know, never really expected him to be there. But once mm-hmm. you actually see what's left of the Spurs trying to go against the Warriors and sort of that fruitless effort in game one, you feel sorry for the guys who are still there. And you start to wonder whether they've got some like, you know, feelings of abandonment a little bit, like where's our guy, where's our captain. Uh, to be honest, I was you know thinking like David Robinson, they call him the Admiral. Would he ever abandon ship like this, Andrew? Let me ask you that. Well, I mean, look, regardless of whether Kawhi is on the court, it's fucking bizarre that he's not on the bench with them at least i mean that's more than anything else over the last couple months is sort of like all the proof you need that this relationship is deeply screwed up and then pop came out and said you know ask Kawhi and his group and then like three hours later we get the report from chris haynes and espn like Kawhi is rehabbing with his medical team in New York and like which is clearly like a direct response to Popovich I mean the whole thing is so messed up and we probably shouldn't talk more about the Warriors Spurs game since like that will play out as we record this podcast but the Kawhi thing is officially like the most intriguing subplot of, of the next three months because I don't see it I it kind of feels like we've already crossed the point of no return. Yeah, I hear you on that. You know, the and his group dig is so great. Like I sometimes pe- people <laughs> there's so much me. disdain. It's it's wonderful. No, and it just adds a layer to it. Like it makes it seem more sinister too, which is great. Like people will email me or DM me to complain about something you've written or something you've said. Like uh-huh. and sometimes I think maybe in the future I'm just gonna say, you know what? That's up to Andrew and his group. Okay, you're gonna have to <laughs> you're gonna have to ask Andrew and his group about you know that crazy take he had because I don't want to have to speak to it. I mean, it, it just seems like sinister. Like, what are these guys doing? They're plotting the downfall of the San Antonio franchise. I mean, is that what Kawhi's group is doing in some you know shady, seedy hotel room somewhere across the country? Well, and by the way, in general, I think both you and I are very much pro player in terms of like disputes between management and players like I, I certainly always side with a player uh or almost always anyways this though it really feels like Kawhi is kind of out on his own on this one and if anything I feel like we should be clowning him more for the way he's handled all of this and I, so which is to say, I think that that's going to start to happen over the next couple of months. We're going to realize like Kawhi just kind of quit on an entire season and didn't really explain it to anybody. And if this were any other superstar, it would be a huge deal. And Kawhi wants to be in the category of superstars who are talked about that way. So like, honestly, this, this like it comes with the territory that we clown him for how ridiculous he's been the last six months. Yeah, no doubt. And look, if this was 10 years ago, then some of the oh, things could be uh, chalked up to miscommunication. Oh, you know, he's he's got our permission to go be in New York. It's fine. 
Kawhi could clear all of this up or at least tell us where he stands at any moment. You know, this is yeah. the era of instant, you know, communication between, you know, players and fan bases. If he wanted to get his message out, he could, and he's repeatedly chosen not to. So he either just doesn't know that any of it exists, which I suppose is possible, or he's using that as a tactic, which, uh, you know, it's it's putting San Antonio, it's kind of backing them into a corner in terms of the decision whether or not to trade him this summer. Uh, you have to read all of these things as sort of maneuvers uh, if you're them. I mean, you can't just chalk it up to, oh, Kawhi's being, you know, quiet Kawhi there. He's just being himself <laughs> again. Like, yeah. it's, it's not that simple here. I mean, it's been dragging on long enough and his opportunities. I think about this, Andrew. What if he had just taped a 15-second video clip? He, he probably doesn't even have an Instagram account, but if he had just put no, that up on the internet... you're exactly or, right. Yes. Or let's say, let, let's say he had sent that to ESPN, and they just play that during game one, and it's Kawhi saying, hey, LaMarcus, Manu, Tony. Yeah, I'm totally. I, I'm with you guys. Like, Let's go out there and do it. Sorry I can't be there. It's done. It's a wrap. None of this stuff is being talked about. He's making his team's situation worse, not just because he's not at the game, not just because he's not healthy, but with how he's conducted himself off the court. And he does need to be held responsible for all of that. Yeah. And and the Spurs are not like an organization full of hard asses or dumb asses. Like they, you know, I, we've been over this, but whatever. It just, get your shit together, Kawhi. Because I, when Kawhi was healthy, like I fell in love with his game over the second half of last season. And in the playoffs, this time last year, he was like hitting a whole nother level against the Grizzlies. And he was amazing. So Come back healthy, like figure this out, um, and get an but, apology ready. You know, get a two thousand yeah. word, get um, your fifteen second apology <laughs> video ready for Ben Golliver. Absolutely, yeah. Players um, Tribune. However, you're going to do it, but you need to have a <laughs> you need to have a reputation remake ready to go by next absolutely. season. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to talk Blazers Pelicans. But first, Ben, tell us about the new boss in town. There's a new boss in town at Buffalo Wild Wings, and he deals in bacon. It's the Bacon Boss Burger featuring bacon three different ways and a blanket of white cheese sauce. That Bacon Boss Burger at Buffalo Wild Wings is joined by other new favorites like the smothered cheesesteak quesadilla, sweet chili shrimp, and Alaska Cod Classic. All of them pair perfectly with a Sam 76, a fruity ale with a crisp finish of a lager. Hurry in today and try them all before they're gone at Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports, NBA playoffs, available for a limited time while supplies last, and please drink responsibly. Go meet the boss, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I usually say, Andrew, I mean, this is my catchphrase, it's, you know, prescription strength hair pills wings and sports right <laughs> and I mean, mattresses absolutely <laughs> and, and, and comfort comfortable mattresses that's all you need in this life that's what we're about all right overreaction number six blazers need to blow it up trade cj move to seattle do something after that game one i don't know about move to seattle i, th- I think we need the we need that i90 is it i90 or i40 we need the the sonics blazers rivalry to be a thing okay edrew look it's the i5 rivalry there's no question about oh, it oh wa- okay sorry <laughs> i, I want to say all the freeways that end in fives run north south and all the freeways that end in zeros run east west we're gonna need a fact check i don't know maybe Rand mcnally can get on the line for us but um that rivalry is great uh, we do need to bring back the sonics we do need to keep the blazers in portland that 
I don't know where he was going, where Noah was going with that overreaction. Uh, but I thought there was signs of legit nervousness uh, if you're Portland, right? I mean, your two main guys really struggled, especially early in that game. And then Anthony Davis, I didn't think they had an answer for him, did they? I mean, did they settle on any possible matchup that's really going to work? Uh, it seems like he's going to get whatever he wants. Rondo had the insane assist total in large part because he's just feeding Anthony Davis like it's a you know a practice drill over and over and over again. Yeah, uh, and that's tough. So for Portland, you have to fight fire with fire. You know, you basically have to find a way to unlock both Lillard and McCollum. Um, and I think uh, you know CJ is sort of the X factor here. Like if he steps up in Game Two, all the panic that Noah's you know putting forward here with this question will subside. I think pretty quickly. Uh, if not, it's going to be a, a five alarm fire in Portland because they were not playing as the underdogs. These Blazers are way more accustomed and kind of in their natural habitat as the scrappy, you know, overachievers who everybody counts out. And you know, Lillard loves to use that like hashtag they. You know, what are they saying about us? Uh, <laughs> Does he well, do that? That's kind of kind of whack. Well, but sure. well. They had you as the third seed, which means they thought you were the favorites in this series. So it's time to start playing like it. Well, okay, Uh, because my take is the polar opposite of that, which is that the Blazers are, I mean, they basically, hashtag they, uh, had a really good February and March, which set them apart from the rest of the West. But they aren't actually more, hashtag they are not actually more talented than a team like the Pelicans. I mean, and we saw it the other night where, like, you know, guys like Aminu, guys like my, I have no idea why Myers Leonard was on the court in that that final 60 seconds. That boggles my mind. But really, like, everyone beyond Dame and CJ were pretty shaky in that game. I mean, Zach Collins actually was pretty, was pretty much okay, but, uh, they just like they don't have the talent of a of a three seed, and and it's unfortunate because they're going to get measured as if they do. And I think if they underachieve, I mean, I picked the Pelicans before the series began, and the Pelicans are a particularly nightmarish matchup for them because of the way Holiday and Rondo can slow down the guards and funnel them to Anthony Davis defensively, and, and then the way. I mean, Anthony Davis might average 35 or 40 in this series because of the, the like, hopeless matchups for Portland on that end. Um, but I think it's going to lead to a larger reckoning for, for Portland in terms of what this team really is. And the fact is, like, they're just not that special. They're going to be they're gonna be between like a fourth and seventh seed in most years in the west yeah so i mean i'm kind of with you they're a soft three seed because the other injury issues around the conference sort of just opened the door for them but wouldn't you agree that like mccollum and lillard are gonna play better than they did in game one right like you don't think that holiday and rondo are gonna lock them up for like that for the whole series do you no um but i do think that like anthony davis disappeared for the fourth quarter and still had 35 and or 38 or whatever he finished with. And that's going to be an issue in every single game. 
Yeah, I just think that they go as those guards go. That's been the story. And those guards are pretty darn good. Now, Lillard has had some issues in terms of playoff performance. You know, his field goal percentage in the playoffs is right around like Kyle Lowry levels. You don't want to be in that company. That's bad company. <laughs> you know, he's a great player uh, who sometimes, you know, the efficiency falls off in the postseason. Lillard's had some amazing postseason moments individually uh, and some real, you know, breakout games. But yeah. sort of you know, he's not that Steph Curry level, like, you know, he just gets his points easy, uh, you know, bends the defense, whatever he wants to do, uh, night in, night out in the playoffs. I mean, that's just hasn't really been his track record in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in terms of getting him unlocked, I mean, they were pressuring him. He was moving the ball quickly. I mean, if anything, it was sort of like the LeBron thing where he's trusting the supporting guys maybe a little bit too much. And it's, it's tricky when they are trapping the ball out of your hands. Uh, but you, maybe you have to go back and get it a little bit more quickly or uh, react to it. Maybe sometimes you have to just you know, be used off the ball and make quick decisions and, and attack when they aren't able to kind of set on you early in a, a possession. I mean, you've got to mix it up and, and kind of unlock them. And I just think Dame's a lot better than he played in game one. And uh, CJ, to me, he's got a shorter postseason track record than Lillard does. So that's why I circle him as sort of the X factor. Uh, but you know, I, I guess as great as holiday is defensively, I'm just not convinced that this Pelicans team, which was pretty average defensively uh, the whole season, despite having two sensational defensive players in Davis and holiday, I'm not convinced they're going to be able to bottle up Portland to that same degree for a whole series. I think that's a very fair read and it's going to be a really close series. My only point is that it's not some massive upset if new Orleans wins because they're, about even both of both teams are, are imperfect and have guys who you wouldn't like feel great about counting on. I mean, I don't feel like thrilled counting on the team that is running with Ian Clark and Etwan Moore for 48 minutes at the three position and, and the two position. Like it's like neither team is perfect. I just think that the Blazers have been a little bit overvalued and we we talked about it all season it's like they're a really fun team and it's awesome that they're playing as well as they have been but uh i think they're they were kind of due to to come back to earth regardless in these playoffs yeah one quick thing i'd say you know i I mentioned earlier how disorienting it was to watch victor oladipo's sort of big breakthrough Mm -hmm. it was disorienting to watch anthony davis celebrate a playoff win i mean when he was on the uh the podium talking about how he got the monkey off his back i was sitting there pinching myself saying i didn't know if i was ever going to see this (laughs) and we've been waiting six (laughs) years uh, for this moment but andrew i actually have some breaking news here that's happening as we're recording and i want to get your live reaction are you ready for this hit me Joel Embiid has just put on his Instagram story, quote, I'm bleeping sick and tired of being babied, unquote. So he's obviously referring to, I guess, his health status uh, in terms of when he's going to be able to get back on the court. Now, obviously, he's got the orbital fracture, which caused him to miss the last, I believe, eight games of the regular season. He didn't play in games one and two. He had the mask on, uh, you know, before game one. And, you know, everyone just assumes he's going to wear that mask going on. But he is sending a not-so-subtle message uh, via Instagram stories, Andrew. What do you make of it? Well, there you go. Uh, My immediate reaction is that Joel Embiid is, like, 150% playing on Thursday night in Miami. Because the we've seen the Sixers kind of bow to pressure from Embiid all along the way this season and to his credit it he's been right he's stayed healthy um I don't know though I mean I don't th- I don't think 
he's been babied. <laughs> I'm not Joel Embiid. I'm not in the doctor's office with him. I just think I don't blame Philly for if they're not going to play him in game one, I don't blame them for sitting him in game two. And I don't blame the Sixers for being like super careful about all this. They they are good enough to be thinking about like the next six weeks. And if that's the case, like just slow play it. You make make sure all the boxes are checked before he gets back on the court. Should he have done this? I mean, is this conduct detrimental to the team? <sighs> no, there you go with the the sixty year old man take. I don't think it's detrimental to the team. I do think it was unnecessary and it almost comes off as a little bit thirsty on his part, where like he he doesn't like being seen as soft. I understand that. But this is a situation where, like, I think any star player would be treated the way Joel Embiid has been treated in Philly. It's This is I not al- special treatment. He's not being wrapped in bubble wrap here. I also think you made this point about it not being a, a, an ankle injury or a foot injury or a knee injury previously where right. this isn't, like, some huge risk of, like, re-aggravating and having some season-ending thing. Now, obviously, he's in a serious medical situation. They're trying to, you know, uh, dot the I's and cross the T's here, but it's hard to keep guys off the court in the playoffs when they have, you know, a face injury. I mean, especially when you're watching your team lose a game and you're feeling like, Hey, you know, he would have been the difference in that game too. I mean, the frustration could come out. That's only natural. Not sure. That's the the exact method he should be addressing this though. I think that winds up becoming a stra- uh, distraction <laughs> to the team. Uh, and now the pressure is on their front office big time. I mean, I think this goes above Brett Brown and the trainers, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't this become a, a Colangelo decision when you've got, the face of your franchise, you know, basically, you know, putting your, you know, airing your dirty laundry like this. Yeah. I mean, unquestionably, and again, no shots at them, but like the Sixers are sort of, there's a track record of letting Joel do what he wants on some of this stuff. Although maybe not, maybe behind the scenes, he's been like dying to get back out there. And that's why he's he's now venting via IG story. Uh, the, the, the route that Kawhi should have taken, but the, yeah, I think that they will ultimately, uh, this forces Colangelo's hand and he will be on the court in Miami. Man, well, let's hope nothing happens to him when he comes back. I mean, first <laughs> of all, like, but this is a really bold, aggressive move. Impressive. I did not see this coming. Breaking news on the podcast. This is what happens when we record at night. I think this should be the model for most of the playoffs. It's fun. We're, we're punchier and uh, and we get live twists and turns from the league uh to wrap up the blazers conversation i hope that series goes seven i hope the blazers come back better than they were in game one and uh it didn't disappoint i mean that that was the series i was most excited for and it should be awesome through the rest of the playoff or through the rest of the first round and last two overreactions here overreaction number seven the raptors have proven they're for real and it's time for Boogie and John Wall to play together in Phoenix. I support that take in large Ooh. part because I love watching the current version of the Pelicans, and I am already dreading what they will look like when they try to like force Boogie back into the picture. Um, and the Wall stuff, I don't know. Let's, let's wait on the Wizards um, because I was very negative during the second half uh of that toronto game and the raptors were incredibly beatable they kind of remind me you don't follow hockey at all but like the raptors are very close to being the washington capitals of the nba where they just not only do the players kind of like 
look vulnerable out there, but you can sense the anxiety from the fans trickling down to the court. And uh, it was a very winnable game for, for the Wizards until they did their Wizards thing and made a bunch of boneheaded mistakes that gave the game away. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you're saying let's not wait on the Wizards. We don't want to wait too long, Andrew. I mean, this season's going to be <laughs> Only over. Only a couple more games. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> this season's going to be over pretty quick. But let me ask you this. I mean, this is almost obligatory. I feel like contractually obligated to bring this up right now. But after watching that game one, I could not help myself from thinking that the Wizards did not deserve to be a playoff team. The Denver Nuggets, with three more regular season wins in a tougher conference, playing in the show with a better player in Jokic than anybody uh, who's on the Wizards roster right now, they should have been, rightfully should have had that spot and the Wizards should have been in the lottery and we needed to get to this 1-16 to format. I'm sorry that it comes at your expense, your fan base's <laughs> expense, Andrew, but can you agree with me that the Wizards, they don't belong? You know what, man? As a friend of yours, uh, I want the reformatting of the playoffs to happen for you. I don't personally care about this but as someone who wants this for you i think that this is a great way to frame your argument because no one in america is gonna look at this wizards team and be like yeah they do deserve to be in the playoffs so use the wizards as a as a uh catalyst for change okay i think this this is you have another week here while they're still in the playoffs to beat the drum and try to try to lobby Adam Silver. A lot of people over at the league office read Sports Illustrated. So get out there. Wow. Well, I was actually expecting you to come back at me and to defend and stand up for your team. So I think this pretty much qualifies as a white flag. Do we play games <laughs> two through four? No, I, look, I'm, I'm being a little hard on them. Uh, you know, I didn't think Toronto looked great in game one either, but Toronto did what it needed to do down the stretch. Uh you know, I thought they really missed the open floor MVP, Fred Van Vliet, at times during that game. But, you know, John Wall, and I hate to pick on him because he is coming off the injury. You know, he's, uh, you know, probably rusty and stuff. But, like, every time he pulls up for a jumper, I just expect him to miss badly. I don't even think he's going to get close. Uh, and if I was one of his teammates, I would probably have that same feeling. And that's got to be tough because they were plagued for so long without him. Uh, I mean, where's your confidence level at with him in terms of, you know, you watch him night in, night out. Like, he is still taking a lot of shots. He's still a huge part of their offense. But mm -hmm. I don't trust basically anything he does if it's outside of four feet from the hoop. Um, You know what? Uh, I don't have the energy right now for a, a, a like deep thoughts on John Wall segment. I will just say that my obviously the jumpers have been an issue this year. They were an issue last year, last six years really. And I think part of that is a function of not having a real coach through like the prime of his career. Uh, and I think like and maybe that's maybe part of it's on him too, but I, I think that like there haven't been authority figures in place in Washington to like teach these guys how to win, and they've developed bad habits, and that's sort of what happens. Um, with Wall, I think what's most frustrating is, and you saw it big time in the final six minutes of that Raptors game, like he starts to play for the refs basically like the refs get in yep. his head and he starts trying to initiate contact and uh and isn't really looking to score and refs are not going to give you the calls when you're just 
barreling into people and not looking to score. And then he gets more pissed off and the problem compounds itself. So my only wish for the rest of this Wizards series is for that to like not happen as often because that version of John Wall is easily the most frustrating version of him. Uh, I can live with the mid-range if he cuts out some of the back and forth with the officials. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, I guess my two quick thoughts. I mean, yes, in that game, he really just sort of circled the drain there late, didn't he? Like, you could just <laughs> That's see a great him. way to put it. Here he goes, slowly but surely, uh, going down going down the pipe. Uh, but, you know, he's, like you said, he's never been a good jump shooter. And I think part of the uh, the calculus with him previously is like you take some of the bad and you get a lot of good, right? And I think he's not quite as good uh, because he's, like I said, rusty. He's been out of the rhythm and everything else. Uh, so he's not quite doing as much other stuff to justify those shots. And then also we have seen what their offense looks like when he's not out there taking those same same kind of shots. I think in some cases it's actually been aesthetically a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, I obviously think the Wizards are a better team with Wall than without him. Uh, but I just think having that contrast so recently just sort of reinforces like some of the just really bad stuff in his shooting diet. And also it just reinforces how broken his jumper happens to look right now. And, you know, he may come back and, you know, shoot 75% in game two and make me look bad. That's fine if he does. Uh, but for game one, it was just like, I was cringing every time he was pulling up off the dribble. Circling the drain is a great way to describe the last several months of Wizards basketball. Um, but Let's move on to the final point, and we really only need to do a minute or two. Uh, overreaction number eight, James Harden is ready to win it all. And this hits close to home for me, Ben, because Uh-oh. we did the bracket contest this year. By the way, thank you. to We had over 800 entrants. It's very cool to have the whole open floor globe showing up. It should be fun. And I will say, I went in on Friday and made my picks, and I have the Rockets winning the whole thing. What? Are you serious? (laughs) I am 100% serious. And what happened was, I was writing about the playoffs on Friday, and uh, it was late Thursday night, and I was writing about how strange Draymond has looked for most of this year. And then how great Chris Paul has looked all year. And it's something just came over me. You know I've had a soft spot for Chris Paul for like most of his career. And I just feel like this is the year where he really proves everyone wrong and uh, and puts together a like Dirk-type performance in these playoffs where he sort of silences all the critics forever. And of course, <laughs> less than like three days later... Game one in Houston nearly ends with another inexplicable Chris Paul fuck up. And I mean, now I, I, I feel like an idiot, but uh, I, I guess I've, I've hitched my wagon to Houston. So who knows where this is going? There are so many things to unpack here. I'm going to need way more than a minute. <laughs> First of all, Andrew, so you picked the Rockets in the open floor globe challenge bracket, right? Yes. And it was a strategic thing because I knew you were going warriors. So really, and God damn it. If I'm that's, it's really dumb to take the rockets against the warriors. And, and I've basically set myself up for failure. I'm realizing that it's, it's past midnight over here and my life is flashing before my eyes. Don't worry about it. Didn't you pick the warriors on SI.com though? 
I did, yeah. But and I did that was I filed that on like Tuesday, and uh, I think part of that was some of those predictions can really come back to bite you on the internet if you take a chance. And uh, I just didn't want to mess around. But then when it came down to it with the bracket challenge, like why not mix it up, you know? No, I hear you. So if you guys out there, if you want to read Andrew's breakdown of, of why the Wizards are going to win the title, you just go to the Bleacher Report team stream. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to read his prediction <laughs> that the Blazers are going to win the title, just go over to Yahoo. He's got the Pelicans on ESPN.com and then on CBSSports.com. <laughs> he's got the Milwaukee Bucks. So, oh, yeah. man. All right. Whatever. <laughs> okay, look, but... On to the real talk here about the the Rockets. I mean, forty four light for James Harden in Game One. I mean, Harden Jimmy looks great. Bo- I mean, Jimmy Butler was grasping at air, and I, you know, I, you know, the respect I have for his defense. But Harden was getting whatever he wanted. I thought one takeaway from that game and, and watching the conversation around Harden is, I mean, <laughs> this guy's Adidas commercial. It's kind of corny, you know. It's the innovation. It's the creators only. We've mocked that, but I think a lot of the backlash that he's getting right now is due to his innovation in the gray areas when it comes to the rule book. You know, the, the, the swipe up arm thing on the draw uh, on the drives that gets fouls, this little tiptoe step back thing that everybody's harping on recently. Harden is doing things that no one else in the NBA has ever tried to do. Mm-hmm. And they're successful and they're consistently successful. And when his team beats you while he does that, it's just the perfect situation uh, to generate a backlash. And I just, Every time I see this pushback on whatever Harden's latest move is, I always just kind of think about that in the back of my mind. It's like, this is this is something new, and it's scaring people. You know, it's people like, are going to be so awful about Harden's little step back move. Now that the Rockets are in the spotlight, we're going to have to have that goddamn traveling debate like every forty eight hours. Every Rockets playoff game is going to reignite it on the internet, and we're going to have like all these sort of half-assed basketball fans who watch like four games a year come in and start bitching about how the NBA doesn't call traveling correctly anymore. I'm already dreading And this is someone I've never enjoyed Harden's game, but just like the traveling aspect is a lame criticism. Yeah, and there's a long list because he knows every trick in the book because he's made up half of them. And that's sort of my point is I just think he's in this situation where like he's he's evolving the game and people are just constantly having this negative reaction to it because he's gotten so much better. Uh, you know, in terms of the Chris Paul factor, you know, his basketball IQ in the final minutes of playoff games, he goes from Mensa level to just really, really questionable, like in the, you know, flip the switch. I mean, he was kind of had a rough game one all around. I, I think he called it like, you know, bad news bears or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that turnover in the final minute of the game, that almost cost them the game. I mean, that was completely inexplicable. He airmails a pass like 15 feet over like any intended recipient's head. There was no need to do it. Uh, so it was like the Rockets were sort of like the team that, like you're saying, that scares you to, to pick them because you're like, oh God, they're going to melt down at some point while yeah. also being the team that was the best team in the league because nobody's figured out how to stop Harden and not even Jimmy Butler could do it, right? So it was kind of the total Houston Rockets experience there in game one, but I think they're going to win that uh, series pretty comfortably. And I did not like Thibodeau kind of swiping at Carl Anthony Towns and saying, hey, you know, Towns, he's going to have to work harder for his touches. He's going to have to sprint around more and, and get more creative and all that. It's like, come on, <laughs> like, give him the ball. <laughs> like, this guy's standing there with mismatches <laughs> yeah. Listen, buddy, this is on you. <laughs> by all the guards. Yeah, and, like, to make him, like, kind of scapegoat him, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, that harsh, but, 
you know, to have the explanation be like it's sort of Towns' responsibility to be more involved on offense, I think is dead wrong. You've got guys like Crawford and Derrick Rose just pounding the air out of the ball, uh, and, you know, Towns is there doing what he's supposed to be doing. So to me, it was kind of a misread. I felt some sympathy and empathy towards Carl Towns, and, and that'll be one to track because he was like, you know, their seventh or eighth option in that game, and that's just not right. Yeah, I do not have any more thoughts on the Wolves. I'm I'm out of Wolves takes for the year. I will revisit them in July. Uh, this series is over in four, um, maybe five. This, well, but, so the series is over in four, but you picked Minnesota on the Star Minnesota. Tribune's website. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I two follow ups though for real. Number one, uh, I think the reason Harden gets. Harden does get away with the travel, and the one clip that was circulating after game one, like he was definitely traveling in that clip. I think the reason he gets away with it is because his footwork is so on point, like 98% of the time, that refs just kind of give him the benefit of the doubt, and also will see things that look like traveling and are scared to call it because more often than not, a lot of times when James... James Harden looks like he's traveling. He's actually not and is, is playing within the rule and the gather step. Um, and I think the same is true for Giannis, by the way, because oftentimes it looks like he has taken f- three or four steps and really he's just like a freak of nature and can cover from the three-point line to the rim in two steps. Um, but beyond that, the Chris Paul shit <laughs> really does freak me out because I love him so much, but he is so clearly wound way too tight in those moments and I guess hearing you talk about it my one thought is maybe the silver lining is that he is getting this out of the way early and that will allow him to have smoother sailing once we hit the big games for Houston not totally sure that's that's how it's gonna play out (laughs) but but, whatever man rockets over calves I mean I think the real message here is like he did that and Harden still scored 44 and they won, you know, and yes. it was like somewhat comfortable and it wasn't like a complete meltdown. The other thing I'd say though, in terms of the travel, you're dead on about Harden's footwork. I think Giannis has, you know, amazing striding ability, but there is a lot of travels that go uncalled with him because he sometimes just loses his cool when he gets into traffic and he's taking steps left and right and changing his pivot foots. And I think the the ref could do a better job uh, of seeing those situations. Mm-hmm. And then also on Harden, uh, the step back thing is so tricky because I think the referees are also looking sometimes whether it's at the ball or at his arms to see if there's going to be a foul on the shot because he draws so many fouls in those situations too that it's like you can only really look at one place with him and I think that's part of the reason why maybe he gets away with some of the more egregious step backs because you know he's kind of implanted this idea in the back of the referee's mind that like hey I'm really crafty and I get fouled on jumpers, you know, all day long. So you better be looking for it. So it's kind of hard to cover every base. You know, he's sort of playing whack-a-mole in terms of you know how he innovates uh, off the dribble. But Andrew, look, I started this podcast calling you out for just stealing Noah's great idea. Yep. And I'm going to end this podcast by calling out the Open Floor Globe. Because as you mentioned, we had 800... Uh, submissions in like basically 24 hours to our bracket challenge. I mean, needless to say, we came up with a terrible prize, (laughs) the Kelly Oubre bobblehead. (laughs) We hastily threw it together, uh, but we still had 800 people out there come through uh, with their brackets. And what I want to say is, look, if you submitted a bracket 
if you took the time to submit a bracket, you have the time to go to Apple Podcasts, search Open Floor, scroll down to where it says Rate and Review, and hit the five-star review. Because, Andrew, you and I, but especially I, have been begging <laughs> for the last <laughs> year and a half <laughs> for reviews. And <laughs> look, uh, we just need to have that same kind of outpouring of support to kind of help us spread the word here during the postseason, don't you think? Absolutely. We're very close to a 1,000. And I also thought that you were going to tell all 800 people to email us, which is really emailing me since I'm the one who has to go through the emails. And I was going to be very, very upset with you. But I absolutely support the idea of all 800 people going to review the podcast on itunes we have no idea why that helps but it does so hook us up and if it doesn't it's the funniest scam that apple has ever run (laughs) (laughs) but look guys if you have any questions for andrew to dig through i read them too by the way send them to openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we'll take all your playoff questions lottery scenario questions dream scenarios Uh, whatever they might be. Hey, Andrew, until later this week, I'll talk to you. All right, man, take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.